Welcome to a special preview episode of Acts of the Blood God. I am your host, Kat Bailey, and this is a look at our Pantheon of the Blood God episode in which we take a look at Final Fantasy VIII. Pantheon of the Blood God is our patron-only series that happens every single month. We've done Skies of Arcadia, we've done Lufia 2, and this month we are doing Final Fantasy VIII. Each month we select a game through voting, and then we play through that game with the community over on our Discord. And then finally, once we are all done, we play, we talk about the game, we go through its best moments, we talk about its development history, we argue about it a whole bunch, and then we decide whether it deserves to be in the pantheon of the Blood God. This one is particularly fun because Alex Donaldson from RPG Site joins us. He's a Final Fantasy expert. He has a lot of really interesting insight into this episode. And it's also fun because Nadia and I argue quite a bit about Final Fantasy VIII. So without further ado, why don't we have a quick listen to this episode so that you have an idea of what to expect. I can just imagine the people who were like picked up Final Fantasy VIII thinking, oh man, I can't wait to find out what happened to Cloud and Tifa and what the hell is going on. And, and even more so here, right? Because like I say, this was the second major Final Fantasy game to ever come out. So I remember reading about this exact issue in some some issue or another of uh, official PlayStation magazine. I remember reading about how they were trying to explain and convey that this was a completely different thing. And I think that Final Fantasy VII was so beloved and so impactful that it just overshadowed Final Fantasy VIII. I saw a headline when I was doing research along the lines of kind of the middle child syndrome suffered by Final Fantasy VIII, where it was just always going to be compared against one of the most important games of all time. And there were going to be people a very loud minority who were going to find it wanting. So short of a game that, you know, was the Empire Strikes Back in quality, which in itself was a little bit controversial because it was so different from Star Wars. It was just going, there was always going to be people who just found it wanting, in my opinion. Yeah, I think, yeah, it was always going to, Seven is such a monumental game. Um it was always going to going to have a problem in that regard. But the one thing that I would say that's interesting about this is I do think this is the last Final Fantasy game for a long time, possibly ever, where the development wasn't massively overshadowed by Seven. This was the people who made Seven. And for them, the success hadn't quite sunk in. Or for, mm. much, of the, for much of the development, it, ha- it wasn't really clear because they hadn't, because although it had been a big success in Japan when they were first making this game, it hadn't even come out and been a huge deal in in the West. Um, and when you look at the other games, and you look at 9, which is an introspective look back, um, so maybe you couldn't say that 9 wasn't too concerned with 7 either, but then when you look at 10, uh, and when you look at 12 and, and, and 13, especially 13, <laughs> um, and so on, the, the shadow of seven just looms over it so large and i don't think it does 
with eight, at least to the way, in, at least in the sense of the way it was made. I think in terms of the the critical reception it had, totally, yeah. Um, I think a lot of people were blindsided by it. Um, but I do wonder. It's that thing of like, you know, there's the old urban legend which I totally think is true, which suggests that Final Fantasy VII was one of the most returned games of all time. Mm. Because people saw those CG ads ah. and went and bought it and then got the game and was like, what the <laughs> hell is this? And took it I back. Know about that. Um, it's, it's always been an urban legend, but I, I totally, it's one of those things where it, it must have truth in it because Sony was running, you know, Sony spent $100 million or something crazy like that mm-hmm. on ads for Final Fantasy VII and they were running them in the middle of NFL games and stuff like that. And I imagine people who would buy sports games and stuff like oh. that, you know, were going out and buying this. Japanese RPG probably saw the opening cutscene, went, This was awesome, this is awesome, got to the Scorpion Sentinel and went, What is going on? Like, why aren't they moving? Why are they standing in a line? Um and so I wonder if if because seven sort of got that out of the way, eight didn't suffer from that stuff as much. People knew what they were getting. But then they were like, Where's Cloud? <laughs> Where's Cloud? Yeah, but then you got that, right. Right, and I think, um, you know, uh, Tim Rogers touches on this in his excellent Final Fantasy VII Remake review, which is that, like, the moment people first saw Final Fantasy VIII and saw those more realistic models, the first thought of, like, 75% of the players was Final Fantasy VII would look pretty good if it looked like this. Um, And that has been, I think, the, the, the legacy... This is the shadow that chases the whole series now. It's like the first time voice acting, uh, you know, we, we you get that scene at the start of Final Fantasy X where they're sitting around the campfire. How many people watched that scene and went, Final Fantasy VII would be pretty good with voice acting? Which, of course, is why we've ended up where we are now, right? But <laughs> I do think, at least from a development standpoint, this game wasn't obsessed with Seven in the way that most of the games that have followed have that's, been. Yeah, that's actually a really op- interesting observation. Thinking about it as well, this is kind of a side thought, but do you remember, this was also around the time that Square was releasing um, their collections, uh, Chronicles, and uh, I can't remember the name of the other one, the one with Final Fantasy VI. Anthology, Anthology yeah. yeah. And it had those really incredible cutscenes like uh, of like Final Fantasy VI and Terra getting to the Magitech armor. I remember downloading those like in my computer lab at school, these little tiny screens, and like everyone just kind of huddled around that watching instead of, instead of uh, doing their work. But... It was it was a really interesting time for Square Enix's advancement in uh, CGI and stuff like that. For my money, I still think Square Enix does some of the best CGI in the industry by far. In the wake of the success of Final Fantasy VII, development begins on Final Fantasy VIII in mid-1997, so pretty much right after the release of Final Fantasy VII. This was Square when it was still kind of small and nimble, and it was like, go, 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 we're, we're on to the next thing. And it wrapped development only about a year and a half wow. later, which is completely re- insane when you think about just how much time and effort goes into making a Final Fantasy day. You know, Final Fantasy 16 gets announced last year, and everyone's like, well, I look forward to seeing it in 2030. Yeah. <laughs> everyone's a little bit salty about the delays it's and like, stuff. This is why they don't have any source code, though, right? Because they would literally finish one game, format the hard drive. Oh, I never thought of it that way, but that's kind of depressing. <laughs> Like they would literally, yeah, because and, and it is it is crazy um, to think about it. And and when you think about the, to, to be fair, I think the other that's the other interesting thing. The, the the development staff of this game, nobody really knows how many people it was. 
but it was definitely like over 150 people, which was massive for a game mm-hmm. at that time. Enormous. I mean, it's even relatively large by today's standards. So yeah, it was a lot of people and a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about it and those like you say to you say to yourself, how could they have erased the source code? How could they have done that? But back then, memory was still such at a premium. Like a gig was still extreme, like several hundred dollars. It was not cheap. So Square was not a billion dollar studio here. It had to had to save on resources. So I understand now why that source code is probably lost. From the start, Square set out to make Final Fantasy VIII an event. It was planting its flag. It was saying, this is bigger. This is better. This is monument. This is going to be a monumental release. So, I mean, they had the realistic character models, as we already discussed. They, I mean, the cuts, the CG in Final Fantasy VII was really inconsistent. In Final Fantasy VIII, it was very consistent and mm-hmm. gorgeous. It's like, it looked amazing at the time. Uh, the translation was actually good in this occasion. And everything about Final Fantasy eight was just generally bigger better more polished i mean it's really kind of exemplified by the opening where you have it's like okay you liked one winged angel check this out <laughs> the thing that bothers me about that intro to this day and this is a uh scott sharkey who brought this up years and years and years ago yeah it's such a cool intro with like cypher and and squall fighting and the, the sword fight and then you you realize, oh, they were just having a spat. They were just having like they were just like having a, a a schoolyard fight. Not like they were like mortal, cool, bitter enemies at that point. Yeah, but this is the this is actually I think one of the things. It's one of the things I really like about the characters of this game is that so many Japanese RPGs are coming of age stories of you know people in their late teens, um, but they don't act like it. You know, and this is a, a a Japanese RPG where all the characters are teens in a coming of age story, but they're acting like teens in a coming they of sure age story. Are. Cypher is 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 uh, is like a a, a pissy dick, <laughs> and we all knew one of those at school. And then when you learn a little bit more about him, much of which is optional. In fact, it's probably some of my favourite story beats in the game are these little hidden optional bits. The game is excellent at that. Um, when you learn a little bit more about him, you realise that he's quite sad. Sad boy. <laughs> and I really like that. I, I, you know, in many ways, I sometimes think the game is at its worst when it's all about, you know, the whole of time is going to end and, you know, the world is going to collapse. When it's the little teenage melodramas, I actually think that's when the game really shines. Yeah, Alex, I agree. Because one of the things that I kept thinking about was how much I enjoyed how down to earth it was for a lot of it how much it goes for magical realism i guess you would call it or kind of this futuristic alternate version of europe i just should say i love the design of technology like i love Mm -hmm. that when you see cars they are either science fiction or they are like neo 1920s 1940s (laughs) junkers it's great no like this you know that art deco oh yes yes i just I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Sorry. Go go. go <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that I really liked it when it was being kind of down to earth and it had like this real politique going on. And then it kind of goes off the rails starting, you know, at the <laughs> the end of disc two, when we see the big uh, revelation about Edia 
and it starts uh, introducing the time travel and the time compression and Ellen's special power and everything. And it's it's fine and everything, but there's a part of me that kind of wishes that it had stuck with the, the teenage melodrama and just focusing on the battle against the sorceress in the, the new sorceress war. I just want like the story about Laguna, period. And that, that was perfect. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we will never, ever know exactly what happened, I dare say. But the story does smack to me of they were writing it and they reached a point and they didn't know where to take it. <laughs> I think a like, lot of hmm, Square games are like that. Okay. I think, yeah, I think, but but 8 is definitely one of the less one of the less successful ones. And even again, you know, we're talking about how uh, Fujin and Rajin were leftovers from 7. Mm-hmm. Um, Adia's design was, was, was done before... Eight started production like it was Nomura doodling towards the end of of seven, so it, was, it wasn't like she was even designed for this game. It was like here's this character. He described it as she was his attempt to design a character that looked more like an Amano character, which is why you've oh, got or Amano character, yeah. sorry, which is why you've got that sort of intricate headpiece and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, when you when you hear that, you're like, yeah, maybe this game was thrown together in that it sense. was kind of a but so but so was seven yeah it was kind of a when i think about it it was really a weird time design wise for media like that was around the time the prequel started and queen amidala was starting to get infamous for for wearing all that crazy stuff and that's reminding me a bit of the sorceress frankly i think yeah I, I think the one the one that's most guilty of that is ff12 right you watch the ff12 intro and it's like oh i get it this is lord yes. of the rings and the star wars prequels combined. <laughs> you're totally right i get it <laughs> Um, yeah, but it, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about, um, that story, the, like the, the, the twists the story takes because it does sort of, it loses itself, but also it's always grounded in those characters. So like, even when all that crazy stuff is going on, whenever it comes back to Squall, and actually I think in particular, whenever it comes back to Squall's inner monologue, like when I think of this, I think of the scenes where control of Balan Garden is sort of thrust upon Squall by Sid, who is just a complete moron. <laughs> and <laughs> a dorky waistcoat. It's just a yeah, totally Robin palms. Williams. He looks like Robin <laughs> Williams. Even though yeah. it's, it's that yeah, it's, Phoenix it's, versus but, Robin Williams. The game. But it, it is that it, it, but, but it is that thing if you hit you know, you you see Squall's in a monologue in the in the text boxes and he's just pissed and frustrated and he's such a believable teenager. Um yeah, whereas, you know, I don't know how old Cloud is supposed to be in FF7. 21, it's 21 yeah. right? I had the shirt. So there's only a couple of so there's only a couple of years in it between Cloud and Squall, but Cloud feels way older than he actually is. And people will go, Oh well that's because he suffered so much no, it, it's just that thing of like they design a character and then they slap an age on and they always lower it. It's like how Sid acts like an old man and he's like thirty five <laughs> or whatever. Oh god. In in seven <laughs> yes. that is. Um but Squall actually feels his age, which doesn't happen often. Eight and nine are good at that, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'll Um, give you that, because I was saying in our previous episode that I seriously dislike Squall, especially in the beginning of the game, uh, in the scene where Quistus is trying to get some comfort from him after she's been ejected as an instructor, and he's just like, whatever, whatever, leave me alone. I just felt like that was a really not a justified scene, not a good way to get me, to endear me to Squall. I know he has a glow up. I know he has problems, but... Just being so cold I mean, some like of that. that was the translation. That's true. The translation. I, I, I changed feel like it the translation, even though it's a lot better than sevens, there's still a lot of uh, that can be smoothed out. Like Cypher's chicken was insult. What is that? What is a chicken was? 
I hate it either way. It made him a lot harsher. I, ca- I kind of li- I kind of like that. Yeah, I kind of like that though because it's, it's so stupid. Of, it's ex- it's exactly the sort of benign insult that would wind up somebody like Zell. That's true. Mm-hmm. That, yes, I do like Zell. You know. And, 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 I mean, you know, I don't like the face tattoo, yeah. but I do like. So nice like, though. I don't understand the. I don't understand the Mike Tyson. No more. I saw a photo of Mike Tyson. Right, this is the thing. Oh, absolutely. Like, that's how that happened. He said, "That's cool. I'm doing that." <laughs> uh, I was saying our last <laughs> yeah. episode. I really like uh, some of the character gestures in Eight are really fantastic. Like the way Zell wipes his hand on his pants when he's trying to shake hands with Squall, who of course doesn't reciprocate. But I really appreciate <sighs> that they put that little gesture in there. I love the details yeah, in this game. Like when they detail. walk into a room and all of them immediately move into different ways. Like you'll see Zell pacing back and forth. You'll see Selfie standing by the window. You'll see Squall standing moodily over in the corner. And just those little movements in a PlayStation 1 mm-hmm. game is informing you so much about their characters. Yeah, really good at visual storytelling versus Final Fantasy VII, which had much more instances of characters entering a room and standing. And I mean, the room would be beautifully rendered. Yeah. And I think that Final Fantasy VII was exceptionally good at making environments, but there was only so many resources to go around. So characters would have to be blocky Lego men. And Final Fantasy VIII was a huge advancement over that. This is what I mean about, about detail in general. I think in the story as well, I think... Some of it gets lost in the translation and some of it gets lost because it definitely feels like a story where they were laying the, tr- the, the track as they were already on the train. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> like the walls and but it's, it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, totally. It's, 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 yeah, it's the, it's the penguin, it's the penguin, you know, in front of them, mocking them as they desperately try to, to lay down the next story beat. But when you think about like, you know, Cypher as a character, I absolutely love that, um, I want to tell this 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 one because not everybody might have even noticed it but like so at the start of the game there is if you go to the library there's some incidental dialogue where like one of the characters one of the other students mentions oh cypher's checked out that movie again he's had it out like for nine months now or something like that it's ridiculous he needs to let other people watch this film so you're like okay it's completely optional dialogue cypher's obsessed with this movie and then obviously, as the game goes on, he's ranting about his romantic dream and being the sorceress's knight and all that sort of stuff. And he also hates Squall. And it's like, why does he hate Squall? Then you get a little bit later into the game and you see that uh, you actually play as Laguna as he is a film star mm-hmm. filming this movie. And if you've been paying attention, you realize he's filming the movie that Cypher is obsessed with because he's this knight who uses a gun blade, who is saving a sorceress. And then when you even look at the animation, to come back to what you guys were saying, Cypher has the same battle stance that Laguna <laughs> has in that flashback when he's recording that movie. So, because you, you you have a battle as yeah, part of the Yeah, and the, the, film the, the funny thing about plot. that is Laguna's holding the gun blade like an idiot because he doesn't use a gun blade. He doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, and it's a, yeah, and so it's like... Cypher is, has modeled himself on this movie star and he hates Squall because it's a subconscious thing almost. Squall reminds him of his hero, which of course he does yeah. <laughs> for, for other reasons. Yeah. And it, I just love how that's all joined up. But it, it's really weird. Any other game would be so proud of that plot point. They'd be like, this is so damn clever. It's sort of like, because it's, it's intertwined and it's told in an interesting out of sequence way that's sort of like, you know, it's like a Stephen Moffat Doctor mm-hmm. Who thing. But 
it's just there and they don't even draw any attention to it. It's nuts. <laughs> that is a really cool little detail. I love it when Square Enix is subtle like that. When they let themselves be subtle and clever, it's they could put up some really, really fantastic stuff. That was our special preview of Pantheon of the Blood God. If you enjoyed that, the entire episode is available now over on our patron-only feed. It is available to $10 and above patrons. And if you enjoy the podcast, you can also get access to our Discord. You get access to special episodes, including our Witcher Watch on Netflix. And a little later this month, our special 35th anniversary episode, of The Legend of Zelda, which is available for $5 listeners. So lots of amazing content for our patrons. So go ahead and subscribe, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. Beyond that, our weekly episodes will continue to come out every single Monday. We've got a lot planned this month, including our continuing console RPG quest and reviews of Bravely default to and persona 5 strikers so please look forward to that in any case i've been cat bailey thanks for listening and until next time happy adventuring